0: Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first-check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm And check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at Cooligo.com. Beezer Clarkson is a managing director with Sapphire Partners. Sapphire Partners makes LP investments in venture capital funds across the U.S., Europe, and Israel. She's also our host today. Ann Martin is the CIO of Wesleyan University, where she oversees their endowment. And previously, she was a director of investments at Yale University. Beezer has hosted episodes of Origins in the past. She's back. And now I will get out of the way.
1: Hi, as Nick mentioned, I'm Beezer with Sapphire. And I'm really so excited to be here today with Anne. She is someone I've long admired as a person and investor and as a Wesleyan alum. So with that, Anne, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? And please do work in a bit about the Olympics and your experience there, because I think it's a little known fact that people don't know. Hi, Beezer.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. And it's really great to be here and especially to be interviewed by a Wesleyan person, because I absolutely love the school. One of the greatest things about being there for the last nine years has been working at a place that gives me a huge psychic reward, Um So I came to Westland nine years ago, and it was really a reset for the school. I started the office that exists now. We're six people now. The endowment's just a little over a billion dollars. And it funds the financial aid packages for our students, um, as well as, altogether, it's about 19% of the operating budget for the school. So it's a really important financial asset to the school Um, Before that, I was at Yale, as uh, you mentioned, and I was there for six years um, working with David Swenson, so I learned from the best. Um, I was totally new to asset management when I came to Yale. It was a complete serendipitous event for me. Um, We had moved to New Haven for my husband's job. Um, I'd been in private equity in um, San Francisco prior to that. I took a year and a half off to get my family settled in New Haven, and my kids started playing Little League baseball, and they got assigned to a coach, and that coach was David Swenson. Really? Yes, that's how I met Dave.
1: I didn't know he did baseball.
2: Oh, yes, he's he's a wonderful little league coach. Oh, Actually, amazing. He's coached soccer. His own his own uh, his youngest son is about a year older than my kids, so was on the same team. And Dean Takahashi's kids were on that team too. <laughs> so that's how I got to know Dave. I sat on the sidelines watching my kids play baseball, and I always joked that. I think he hired me because I was the least insane parent he had ever met on the baseball (laughs) field. (laughs) So you mentioned Olympics, and I was an Olympic rower. I was on the 1988 team, which was in Seoul, Korea. I was in the women's quad, and I rode all through college prior to that. I was a swimmer, a competitive swimmer. My husband was also a rower, and he happens to have a little hand-eye coordination, but for most rowers, we have none. So I had no illusions about my kids' future in the um, Major League Baseball. So I was completely nonplussed on the sideline, <laughs> no matter what happened. <laughs> so I was the most sane parent he had ever met. We got to be friends. And he, um, I got to talking to him after 18 months about going back to work and just getting his advice. And he said, why don't you come and try Yale? And that was very unusual. Uh, Yale doesn't usually hire people laterally or from the outside, but uh, one of the um, attributes I had at the time was absolutely no knowledge of what they did, which actually was a plus. I didn't have to unlearn a lot of things and I didn't have an opinion coming in. So I was able to be shaped by the David Swenson
1: approach, the philosophy there. Um, Could you say, I, I did not want to sidebar too much, but what does that mean? What is the David Swenson approach and philosophy? And you're, tra- you're transitioning in from doing direct private equity investing. So. Yeah.
2: So prior to that, and just go back a little bit, I, I had, uh, did a very short stint at Rosewood Capital in San Francisco Um, I joined them in 1999, but prior to that, I'd been almost a decade at Alex Brown, and I worked in the technology practice in San Francisco, working with growth companies, taking them public, um, doing M&A work. And uh, prior to that, I graduated from Stanford Business School in 91. So— So what did it mean to come out of private equity and then go into, what does it mean I had no knowledge? Well, I didn't really have a lot of interactions with investors for our private equity group. That was in somebody else's hands. So, and even if I had, it was a very narrow view. When I went to Yale, I really sort of learned from the bottom up, you know, what is the philosophy, the diversification aspects. It was like, of course, I'd been to business school and you read about the capital asset pricing model and modern portfolio theory, but- David had really put it into practice. So there was a lot of emphasis on an equity orientation, the long-term horizon at Yale. We're very Endowments are very unusual in that our investment horizon is forever, theoretically. So we're not like retirees that have to worry, like, am I going to have enough money when I die? We really have the luxury of investing over a very long time frame. And David managed a portfolio to really take advantage of that very unique aspect so things like venture capital, for example, which I know we'll talk about later, that's a, an asset class that is really difficult for people to do unless they have a very long time horizon. Because, as you know, we go through these very long cycles. You might have a 20-year cycle. If you're an individual, you may die before you get all your money back from a
1: venture capital <laughs> I mean, firm. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> it is so unfortunate, but it's true.
2: <laughs> we have funds. As you know, there are still 99 and 2000 funds that still have you know, mm-hmm. stub positions. So mm-hmm. it's a very, you have to be very, very patient. Yes. And patience requires a long time
1: frame. So, so then talk us through, how did you come to get to Westland? So Yale's great with David, which is yeah. amazing.
2: So I started there and I worked very hard in the natural resources portfolio and then gradually moved into private equity. My background in San Francisco really helped and with growth equity companies. So I had a good network there. So that was very useful in helping to shape the venture capital portfolio there. And um, so I was happy. I mean, it's it's a great place to work. Um, I always felt like I was the dumbest person in the office, which I'm if sure you're a certain kind of person, that's a, that's a really wonderful place to be. You feel like you're constantly learning. But in um, 2010, Wesleyan came calling. My own family background is— Wesleyan, Wesleyan, Wesleyan. My great uncle graduated from Wesleyan in 1929. Oh, I didn't know that. Part. My uncle was 61. My brother was 82. My sister was 88. My cousins were 88 and 90. And my niece just graduated with university honors Congratulations. in 2017. So a long, long history. The call actually came from my uncle, who was a board member emeritus at the time. And he uh, he said, look, this position's open. Is there any chance he would be interested and I went home and thought about it. And, you know, the endowment was under $500 million at the time. It was really, really small. And there was a, a lot of thinking about whether it was even big enough to support an office. Um, can you but, compare with
1: how—can you share what Yale's was or just give a order time, of At the time—and this was
2: 2010, so it was yeah. post-crisis. the crisis. I think Yale, when I'd gone to Yale, was in the $11 billion range. It had peaked out at almost $24 billion. It was probably back in the $17 billion range. Okay. So $500 million was really small. Um, so I went back, um, you know, I thought about it. I talked to my husband about it and, you know, ultimately it was a real draw because of the long family history there. Um, it was sort of a lot of low hanging fruit. It was going to be a big challenge and mm-hmm. I like challenges and altogether, it seemed like a pretty interesting offer. I talked to David about it immediately, David Swenson, and he was very supportive. I think if you know David and have you watched him over the years, he's had something like fourteen people leave the endowment over time and manage other endowments, and that's been great for many, many institutions. So he was supportive. Um, I think he felt like I had great impact there, but I would have much more impact on Wesleyan in this role. And um, and so ultimately, I ended up going through the process and taking the job. Oh. We're so
1: thrilled in the Wesleyan community that you did. Oh, well, thank you. Can you, so you'd start about this, explaining a bit about the Wesleyan endowment and what it does. Can you just give a short overview of what that means around how the combination of your investing and endowment's purposes is is what, Hmm. and then how does that then work with the operating budget and the scholarships? Just super high level because a lot of people, I think it's just a little opaque. Yeah, yeah.
2: So endowments are—we're really special in the U.S. that we have even this construct. We don't see it in many other places around the world. And this is really sort of—it started with people like Yale and Harvard. Grateful alums have given money to the school, and they wanted that, that money to benefit the schools over very long periods of time. So it's set up in an endowment where essentially it's a pool of capital where we cannot spend the actual principal. We can only spend the money that this endowment makes. Literally, you can't spend the principal. We cannot spend the principal. It's illegal. So if yes, you don't make there any There extra- are many
1: rules, both state level and federal level about how you have to treat these endowments. So if you don't make any I'm not sure the word profit is the correct one, but if you don't make any additional margin, you have no money to invest. Or yes, to, to sort to spend of irrelevant
2: now okay. because we're hundred and fifty years into this endowment. Okay. It started Got in the late eighteen hundreds. So if you look through, I, I'm not even sure what the number is for Westland, but the actual principal of the endowment on got a it. billion is probably somewhere in the 300 million it. range. It's, so we don't really have to worry about it overall. It. However, a new endowment, a new donor coming in and giving money, if we they were under underwater or yeah. below the the mark that at the time they gave the money, we're really we're really restricted on okay. and, from spending that money. So endowment capital is just that is permanent capital to to the university. And then there, so we could spend sort of like $700 million out of this, yeah. but the whole principle behind it is that each generation of students that's coming into Wesleyan should benefit just as much from the prior students from this endowment. So what does that mean? It means we have to maintain the purchasing power of the endowment. So every endowment has a spending rule. We're only allowed to, people, the board puts this in place and says, okay, we think the balance, the right balance is we're going to spend 5% out of the endowment every year now if they're right it means that not we'll spend 5% out of the endowment each year and the the endowment will also grow enough to make up for that 5% and some inflation so if in 1920 20,000 paid for a professor now a professor costs 100,000 mm-hmm. dollars the endowment has that that represented you know 0.1% of the endowment in 1920 should still represent 0.1% of the endowment today so that's roughly okay. what the endowment does Endowments have had great growth. and so what you see if you look across endowments is they 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 can be expressed as like how much of the spending is, is helping the operating budget? For us, it's about 19 percent. But if you look at Yale, that's varied between like 35 and 45 percent. It's a huge amount. Now you can imagine a day when these endowments get big enough that they're, it's hundred percent and then there would be no need for tuition. Mm-hmm. right. So that's the goal is we want to relieve we want to relieve the tuition burden on the students. So these grateful alums that really have taken care of the school through the endowment, are what they're really doing is alleviating the pressure on families and students in the future to come to the school.
1: That's awesome. So can you keep going on about West Endowments, Let's dig in a bit more about maybe how it's evolved over the nine years that you've been there. And however much, whatever is unshareable, just edit out. Okay. Whatever <laughs> detail you feel comfortable sharing. No, it, it's really It'd be great it's, to understand the changes and what you said there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. Like yeah. what sort of has evolved over that?
2: So when I came in, it was just, I would call it the the endowment had not gone through a really hard look in a long time. And it had many of the aspects of not, not having changed in like 30 years. So for example, endowments usually have, the staff usually reports to an investment committee, that investment committee is there to make sure the processes are thorough and they're doing a good job and the asset allocation is right. And we didn't have an investment committee. We had this thing called the subcommittee of the finance committee. So it didn't even report to the board yet. This is like the biggest financial asset, one of the most important assets of the school. So we had to recreate a new investment committee. First of all, for governance, we had to rewrite the investment policy statement, which states the rules on how we're going to invest it. We had to, we had, we were keeping all the performance on spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets, which had a lot of fat finger errors. So we had to go back and create ways to track the performance better we had to hire people. Um, it was really sort of a complete redo, and we haven't even talked about the portfolio yet. Feel free. Right? <laughs> so the portfolio was in place. Um, I think there were twenty-six managers in the portfolio at the time I came. It was is that like, a lot or a little? Like what? That's is- pretty. That's pretty concentrated, actually. Okay. And there were managers that were sort of eight percent positions in the portfolio. Is that now? People have different risk okay. profiles, so for some people, eight percent sounds great. For other people, it doesn't. And for me, it didn't. That sounded like a lot with a single manager and one that I didn't know very well. So one of the jobs on the portfolio was to go around, meet all the managers, decide, you know, green light, keep, yellow light, watch, red light, terminate. Um, I'd say the other thing was that, you know, private equity and venture— They those kind of asset classes that are illiquid require a really high degree of monitoring and attention. And so it's really hard to do that with a volunteer investment committee managing Mm -hmm. the portfolio. You really need staff Mm -hmm. to do that. So as a result, those parts of the portfolio were really underdeveloped and undermanaged. So a lot of the time over the last nine years has actually been spent trying to shift the portfolio to really terrific managers in the illiquid asset classes where we
1: we still believe we're going to get enhanced return. Can we, I want to dive into that in the venture side for the obvious reasons of the Origins podcast is about that side of the business. And also I clearly care about it too. Um, But can you share a little bit at the macro level? Does that mean you have, when you say you're invested in managers, it always means you're going through another vehicle, like uh, someone who's either, but they could be buying public stock. Yes. But is so yes. there a portion of a, of the endowment that is in, in public stocks or debt and other assets, like you know, real estate, currencies? Can you sort of do a macro quick over so people understand the, the multiple assets that you think about, not just venture? Yep. So the, the endowment is well diversified.
2: We're trying – asset classes are broadly devo- defined as sets of assets that we hope – will behave differently in different economic environments. And that gives us the diversification in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And that's really, if you think about modern portfolio theory, that's your only free lunch, right? Is that venture's up, real estate's down, but now real estate's going to be up, venture's down. Altogether, it, re- it it reduces the volatility of the portfolio, but both over a long period of time are going to achieve the target return. So we want diversification. So we have about 35% of the portfolio in public equities around the world, Through managers. We don't do any direct investing. We have about somewhere around 8% in real estate, about 7% in natural resources. We have this broad hedge fund category called absolute return. That's about 20%. And our private equity and venture together are almost 30% of the endowment. And we have a, a small fixed income and cash allocation of about 6%. That's really our, you know, we'd love to have zero, but we're realists and we know someday the markets will be in complete disarray and we're going to have to go find some liquidity somewhere. And so we keep that around as our sort of dry powder and crisis management vehicle.
1: Sure. And then how many people then manage that array? There are six of us. Um, Yeah. Okay. So pretty small group. Is that similar, obviously with more zeros on it, if you're at Yale, sort of of like when you came, did you think through similar sort of portfolio style or did you say for, for different universities there should be different to your point about risks and appetites and shift things around a bit? Yeah, people
2: really, depending on where you are and what your your targets are for the university, yeah. people can have different asset class um, allocations. For example, Yale was even more illiquid than we are. And they can be because they have more ability to go find liquidity in other places. So for example, if... During the crisis, Yale was able to go out and, and issue commercial paper and things like that. Yale is a, Yale is a you know amazing place that way. Wesleyan, we're at, obviously with five hundred million. We already had two hundred million dollars of debt on the university's balance sheets when I came, so it was immediately clear. Like in a crisis, we're not going to go out and be able to find liquidity anywhere else. So we have to generate our own liquidity, and so that automatically meant we could never kind of allocate you know, 55% of the endowment to illiquid assets. It would have to be less. So
1: there are differences like that. Um, okay. And then so the the different buckets you've picked within the portfolio re- represent sort of different risk appetites and how you think the performance might trend in each one of them. And with the overall target being to make the 5%, as you know, in your previous example, plus. Yes, right? exactly.
2: So, I mean, in nominal terms, we really sort of have to achieve an 8 Every year. Well, we're not going to do that every year, but okay. over a long period of time, over- we know there'll be some volatility yeah. along the way. But if we look back 10 years and we didn't have at least an 8% return, that yeah. would be
1: difficult for the school. Yeah. We would have lost purchasing power in the school. Which goes to my next question, which was going to be, how do we evaluate performance at an endowment? If you can invest, you said, if you take a in perpetuity perspective, how do you then measure where you're at?
2: Well, <laughs> believe it or not, no matter what the media says, one year doesn't matter. One year is sort of more kind of luck and sort of a- asset allocation mix than anything yeah. else. But over 10 years, we, we really care. So in terms of measuring performance, we encourage people to look as far back as possible. Would you rather have the best performance for one year or would you rather have the best performance for 10 years? That's a pretty easy answer. And a lot of times you're willing to take some, at the manager level, you're willing to take some underperformance for long-term outperformance. Can you get what is that? What does that mean? So for, like in venture capital, yeah. for example, if you're starting a venture capital program, you're going to have to go through the so-called J-curve, Got right? It. Yep. And you're willing to suffer that. That's going to drag your returns down for the first four or five years of your program, and it will drag your entire endowment down, right? Because yep. anything in the private space is going to have these fees that are yep. coming right away but no returns. Yep. And so – you know, if I were evaluated over three years or one year, you might say, oh, I'm not going to do that because it's going to look bad, right? But if you're measured over five years and 10 years, of course, it's worth it because you have to, you're going to get, if you think you can get a 200 or 300 basis point return above public equities over the long term,
1: that matters a lot. Yep. Yep. And do endowments... So asset managers can use fee and carry as far as performance tools at the LP and obviously the GP level. Is that similar in endowments? Or does it not really a, the, the concept of carry isn't really the right concept? And it's more of an NAV math or for, for, for our, an endowment for yeah. Our compensation? Yeah. Or or just how do you, when you're evaluating, is it just is a fund doing well and therefore. Yeah. So most well? people will evaluate
2: their performance based on how they could have done in a less active manner. So I this gets into, let's just put it really simply. If I weren't there, if
1: nobody was there, what would the what would Wesleyan do? If you're invested in like ETFs or whatever. Yeah,
2: Wesleyan he- might have a 70-30 portfolio of just passive ETFs. Yeah. 70% stocks, 30% Barclays aggregate bonds or something. Yep. Okay, so one way you could look at it is over 10 years. How would that very passive, very easy, low-cost portfolio have done versus our active, very active management approach, right? You better be beating that by, I don't know, at least 1%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now there's another, I told you what our asset allocation is. There's 35% public equities, there's certain hedge funds, et cetera. So another way I might do it is like, what if I took each of those asset classes and said, instead of picking managers, we'll just be as passive as as we can. So we'll do like a Dow Jones real estate index, and we'll do kind of an oil and gas index and we'll, and how would we have done versus that, that composite of similar asset allocation, but passive approach. Well, we better be beating that too. We might not beat it every year, but over a long period of time, we should beat that too. And that's how most people, that's how an investment committee measures the performance of their
1: staff. And do they compare with other universities and say, how does Wesleyan, as an example, we'll just use Wesleyan, compare, or is that semi-irrelevant because everyone has a different, different risk reward profile because can raise money in debt, different ways. So is it, sort of irrelevant when you compare among schools? Because you hear about it in the news, but that doesn't yeah. make it relevant. Right. The news is very obsessed <laughs> with sort of the June numbers that come yes. out. But, you know, I wish
2: that it weren't relevant, but it's hard for investment committees not yeah. to consider that. And and I get it because, you know, ultimately we are vying against these other peer schools for the best students, the best professors, so it matters if their endowment is doing a lot better, they're going to have excess mm. balance sheet capital to go and invest in those kind of things. So it does matter, but it it also, you'd have to really risk adjust some of these performances to understand it. So somebody who has a really large endowment for their student base may be willing to take a lot more risk in their portfolio than somebody who, who yeah. doesn't. Yeah. So we, we really have to, you have to be more thoughtful about it when you look at your peer group got it Of course the media just loves to compare these things and show the numbers but they don't really talk about what the asset allocation underlying it is that that is driving
1: that much I don't know if everyone would you be able to tell is there is there a sort of public file oh sure oh yeah okay. all right yeah well good good homework for someone to do <laughs> every every university
2: has financial statements they publish every year just oh. go to the footnotes and okay. look at the allocations. okay perfect.
1: Um, switching topics a little bit and going a little bit deeper into the venture land. There's a lot of discussion about value add and value add investors. What would you say the endowment value add is, or maybe it's actually not really an, a to useful, an LP to a GP to a GP, yeah. yeah? Or maybe it's not really a useful construct. Sometimes we borrow constructs from other places and it just doesn't fit.
2: No, I think I think it does fit. I mean, I I think our best GPs care a lot about their LPs, and there are GPs that think of LPs as just money. But we've heard this rumor. <laughs> And maybe you have to, but I think the LP base matters a lot, actually a lot more than maybe GPs think about at the beginning, because ultimately your degrees of freedom and your are, are determined by how much your LP base is going to support you mm-hmm. or not support you along the way. And if you don't have an LP base that really understands your, your business, really understands your risk profile- and is willing to take risks alongside you, then that, will, that can blow up in your face over time. And I think, you know, when we saw the 99 crisis, if you look at who survived and who didn't, you know, it's pretty interesting. And if you look back at the LP base, I would argue that most of the managers who kind of came out of that and thrived were ones with really strong LP bases that were willing to continue to to invest in those funds, even in the two thousands, when everything looked dead, you had gone through these terror, this terrible crisis wasn't clear when you were going to have another cycle and who stuck it out during that period. A lot of foundations and endowments because we have a sort of permanent allocation to this asset class. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're a family, if you're an individual, those Mm -hmm. are, those are tougher, right? Those are tougher individuals, you know, an individual who's 25 who's investing in your fund, when they're 75, they might not, you know, mm-hmm. they can see their retirement or mm-hmm. their their end coming. You know, why would they invest in a 15 or 20-year fund? So I think that the LP, mm-hmm. the value add comes from the characteristics of that capital, which are long-term, permanent, supportive. And I think that the endowment and foundation group has another value add, which is if, that the GP's can call on at various, different GPs call on at various levels, which is, we see a lot of funds, yep. a lot of funds. And for somebody who's been in investing for 20 or 30 years and seen the cycles, we've seen a lot of mistakes. We've seen what really works. We've understood like there are lots of different models that can work, but there's lots of things that can cause funds to go off the track. And GPs that care about that will have an LP group that they actually use as advisors. What do you think of this? You know, I'm going to raise my fund to, you know, I'm going from 200 to 400 What are the issues I should be thinking
1: about if I do that? The, how many of your managers do you ask proactively ask you to engage in those conversations? Like 50%, 70% or minority?
2: Well, as Wesleyan and as a smaller LP, we're not as engaged as when I was at okay. Yale, for example. So most funds will have an LP advisory group mm-hmm. and Yale is typically on that group. And so you're meeting on a regular basis where that exchange can happen. I'd say it's much more informal at Wesleyan, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of times when I'm sitting down with our venture managers, I mean, I, I care about the portfolio and we'll have those conversations too, but a lot of it is sort of trying to understand the
1: meta thinking that's going on and and being helpful where I can. Do you think most, do you think GPs could ask more questions of their LPs? That's sort of what it sounds like that might be part of what could be more, more value could be added if there was more in discussions around some of these things, like what have people seen over the last 20 or 30 years? Or maybe I'm wrong and that's not. No, no. I, I would love to hear everything you've seen over the last 30 years. <laughs> maybe I'm an N of one. <laughs> but I think if the history obviously doesn't repeat itself, yeah. but it rhymes or whatever that great yeah. quote is. And we're in a really extraordinary time right now. So yeah. what does history indicate <laughs> as good lessons for the future, right? Or maybe we should have think, that as a question and you can answer here <laughs> on the podcast.
2: You know, I really don't know because I think a lot of the the, the consulting goes on with the Yales and Princeton, Stanford's, MITs, these big groups that really anchor these funds. And so these okay. conversations may be act, very, very active right now. Um, but, and I also think GPs are the busiest people on earth, like that's literally true. the busiest people on earth. Yep. And, um, and we want them being busy because that's their value added is working with these companies. So, you know- there's a limit to how much time they should be spending with LPs. Yeah, um, But I think, yeah, it's, I, I hope those conversations are going on. It, it, it is a tricky time. There's a lot of capital. It's also one of the most exciting times where we have sort of the industrial age of technology. So a lot of it is real, but there's a lot
1: of capital and there's a lot, lot to figure out right now, I think. So being specific on venture, can you talk about the VC, more color on the VC allocation at Wesleyan and how that may have a- approach over the last nine years are you trying to put more in balance it out in the market today steady keep going strong because one never knows like whatever kind of color you feel comfortable sharing and i appreciate you have to keep confidential certain things about the managers because that's that's appropriate path so
2: yeah i mean we're we are big believers in venture i mean we love this allocation to innovation um and creativity and it's It's the most exciting part of the portfolio. In some ways, it's also the most difficult because picking venture capital managers is very, very tough. And a lot of parts of the portfolio, what we're looking at is sort of not only the manager, its organizations, its strength, the strength of its people, but the underlying investments where there's actually real fundamental progress and you can look at valuations and venture is very different, right? So that's a private equity public stock part. (laughs) So imagine if you have a public stock. I mean, you can look at you can look at history of, of revenue growth and earnings, and yep. you can look at the multiple, and you can talk to the manager about what is your thesis here. And venture is very different. It's um, what you're really assessing is the strength of the people, their passion, their ability to open doors, to network, their their experience in helping companies. These are these are much softer qualities in some ways, and a lot of the hard analysis we can do on other parts of the portfolio. But nevertheless, I think it's a really important part of endowment and foundation portfolios. And if you go back and you look at that era of 2000, leading up to 2000, the late 90s were an extraordinary period of time for returns in venture capital. And what you can see is people who had really um, mature venture programs at that time really, really benefited. And their endowments jumped up extraordinarily high during that time, and people who didn't didn't get that benefit. And even with sort of the internet bubble bursting in 2000, 2001, people had reaped a lot of benefit through the late 90s. And it's almost impossible for an endowment to catch up that didn't have that allocation. Mm. So this is really, I think it's really important. It's also an area that that you can allocate less dollars to, right? It's it's very, it has an option-like characteristic to it. So, we, if you put in a dollar into some funds that have given you a 14x, I mean that would have been extraordinary for for Westland, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's one where the our sizing into these managers tends to be a little lower than other parts of the portfolio, but we might have outcomes that give us just gigantic returns. Interesting. So um, in 2010, when I came, we didn't have a venture program, and in fact. The school had invested a little bit in venture capital in 99, 2000, right around it, the time when it was peaking. And so those were really sort of not great vintage funds. And they had decided, we're, you know, we're, we can't do this as a volunteer committee, which is the right decision. When I came along in 2010, I said, you know, for long term, this is a really important component. Let's restart this program. Um, and we set, you know, we, it took us some time to pull the committee together and get everybody to agree on this. And then we started building. I was lucky because I'd come out of Yale. And so I'd underwritten some really wonderful funds and they actually called me when I went to Wesleyan and said, would you like to be part of this fund? So we were able to get into some really nice funds almost immediately. So we started building in 2011, 2012. um, And so we've sort of added one or two managers every year. And um, I don't even know what the roster is right now. I'd have to count it up, but maybe eight eight managers um, in the portfolio. And it's grown from... It's going to be
1: fourteen and a half percent of the endowment. Like, is it an, is it an NAV type count, or is yes, that, the is NAV. that dollars actually committed? It's, it's what they're tra- essentially what it's valued at, not the dollars that went in.
2: Yes, that's Got our it. March value. Got it. So, in the endowment, which is a billion sixty or something like that, one hundred and fifty of it is venture capital.
1: Got it. And you're, are you continuing to add to the program? Like, do you anticipate the one to two managers per year? going forward for some period of
2: time? I, I don't think so. I mean, one of the challenges we have as a smaller endowment is how many managers can you actually have in the portfolio? And I don't mean just in the venture portfolio, but across the entire endowment. So we have about 60 managers and we have six people. Mm. So we're pretty limited on managers we can add. So we sort of, th- we try to think now, if somebody comes in, somebody has to go out. So the bar
1: has gotten very, very high to come into the portfolio. So what would somebody have to, what would be, what would clear the bar? past track record is it is it bad as they came to you and said we've had 3 15 x funds in a row you're <laughs> in you're in <laughs> but so barring that which probably as most managers out there, Um, (laughs) who knows, but it's hard to know the total data set. But what would be something that would be super compelling? Is it a new geography? Is it a new take on a space or is it, you don't know it until you see it and then it clicks? Well, so recently
2: um, we we started in the U.S. because there was just a lot to do in the U.S. and that's our home country. That's our home currency. That's where we want most of our capital at Westland. Our recent time- Did you pick
1: like West Coast, East Coast or-
2: no. In fact, interestingly, we're, we're so bottoms up and this is where it becomes hard. What's the bar, Yeah, you know, when we're so bottom up, what does that mean? It means like we are really meeting with people and understanding these people, how they think, what, what kind of team are they building? How do they make decisions? What do they do with their companies when they're going the wrong direction? What do they do with their companies when they're going the right direction? It's really all of that. Um, so, with the, In the U.S., when we started, we didn't say, oh, we have to be on the West Coast or the East Coast. Although we have, um, you know, it was much more bottoms up, like who's really great and how can we get which of these really great funds? Because it's pretty well known who the top, then I me mean, go back to 2010. We've had a lot of proliferation of funds since then. But at the time, we sort of could map out who we thought the top sort of 20 names were. And so we looked and said, who do we have relationships with? Who, who can we get into? And we sort of went after that first. I think we started to meet with other people that weren't on that list. And one of the things that intrigued us, for example, was New York. Because New York in 2011, if you go back, was not – most of the big unicorns, and I hate this word, but had come out of the West Coast. But New York seemed like a really interesting place, and we started to hear on the ground – great technology. People were wanted to move to New York and, you know, it's all about the ecosystem. Google had a big Mm -hmm. um, presence here. Amazon had a big presence here. It was just starting to grow. And so we actually saw a fund we really liked in New York. We thought we wouldn't just do it to have New York, but we thought this is kind of added gravy is that the supply demand of capital in this city may be a little out of whack and, and be a
1: little bit of a tailwind. Got it. And then so you're This was the historical context for what you're looking at today. Would you maybe looking outside the U.S.?
2: Yeah, so our recent um, efforts have been looking in China, which, Mm -hmm. you know, as you know, has an incredible entrepreneurial culture. Um, And we, you know, we wish we had done it 10 years ago, but we didn't. We just had a lot on our plates. But we've been spending more time in China, and we've made a couple of investments there, which we're really happy about right now. We'll see how they turn out. Um, And we have one investment, believe it or not, Weirdly, in South America, um, there's, tech, again, there's venture there too. <laughs> there's venture there too, and and interestingly, um, when we when we did that one, people were really concerned. A lot of the, the feedback we had from investment committee and other people was, "There's no liquidity there. Like, who's gonna, what's going to happen to these companies?" But our view has always been, if you build a great company, something good will happen. And what was really interesting about South America at the time is like. It, it, don't you believe these trends and internet are going to happen globally? So that means South America too. The entrepreneurs, that the, the presence of technology there was growing, but there really only two capital providers in the venture side that we could really sort of say were branded and interesting, and where an entrepreneur might go. So again, the supply demand of capital seemed like it was a tailwind for us, and we thought this firm was fantastic. And um, you know, it's still pretty early days, but you know, it's, so far we've been really happy with that
1: investment. It's not- can we talk a little bit about liquidity? Because one of the things that I can you help me square this: on one hand, endowments have this great privilege of the forever investing, right? Yeah. Where one part of my brain says, "Oh, then liquidity doesn't matter," mm. but on the other hand, and in this, and this, we have more IPOs this year than I can't remember. I read an article yesterday that said like this has been like one of the biggest exit years for venture in a long time. And yeah that's great but generally speaking we're in the land of the private ipo and there's probably less liquidity if you added it up i haven't run the numbers but presumably how does that jibe in an endowment construct Does liquidity matter and let's just talk with venture because that's the probably the easiest topic just to keep it somewhat narrow or is it really actually fine if companies wait 20 years to exit and because your horizon's 100 so it's still shorter than <laughs> how how do you square that cuz i I feel I'm ignorant on this, but I struggle with understanding how all that goes together.
2: Yeah, it's I think this is a developing issue that endowments and foundations are wrestling with now because we've never seen this phenomenon before where, you know, you might have Uber in your portfolio and it's a huge percentage of your portfolio. Yeah. Um, And it's been a huge percentage, but there's no liquidity there. Or, you know, so it's we I think everybody's kind of struggling to figure this out as as one of the reasons you see endowments, if you, if you go back and look at asset allocation look at the last year and where was venture, a lot of endowments are where we are, like between fifteen and twenty five percent of the endowment is in
1: mm-hmm.
2: is in venture. That's never happened before,
1: not even in ninety nine two thousand. No
2: way. Oh really? Yeah. I mean, maybe okay. it was ten percent or got okay. you know from five to ten percent. I don't really know. We'd have to go back and look, but we've never seen numbers over twenty percent. This is this is really wild, and so. Um, so how, how do you manage that? So liquidity has to come from somewhere else. And so I think the way most people are managing it is if I think about our illiquidity bucket, it's about 42% of the endowment is what we're comfortable
1: with. Which so, means, when I mean, you're defining illiquidity as I can't force a sale, right? Like you can right. I can't force a sale, if you want I can't to, force a sale. If, you're, if your VC manager is in a portfolio company that's really well-valued, you're not going to try to do a secondary underneath it or like, no it's way. just locked in and
2: you got to let it no run. No way, because I mean- you know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to call my GP and say, "Oh, we are selling our stake in you." I first of all, what does that say about the relationship? There's there's all sorts of issues. <laughs> yeah, it'd be
1: complicated. Yeah. So, so we liquid mean like it's it's invested and you can't control the exit time. That's
2: it. right. There's a there is a pretty liquid secondary market that's developed for private equity, so you could do that. But the the thing is these these allocations to the right venture funds are like crown jewels in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't don't, want, you don't want to touch it. So you, so the illiquidity on that side, is that force So what it's really on the done, other side? No, what it's forced is it, we're people still have to adhere to what is a liquidity limit in their portfolio yeah. because you have to pay out the university 5% every year, right? So imagine in a world where you didn't, rebalance anything and all of a sudden, you know, you were 100% illiquid, you just have to hope that you got 5% and plus back every year. And and that's a tough thing to bet on, especially if the world goes into a recessionary period mm-hmm. or something. So what's happened is that that venture portfolio allocation has sort of squeezed down everything else. So, I mean, I think I think that's how most people are managing it and that's how we're managing it is we still kind of adhere to this like 42%. But that means like real estate might have to come down or private equity LBOs might have to come down. Something has to come down to, to accommodate that. So Does that also
1: a- make it hard to add new venture? Because one of the things it does. we're hearing again, I I'm repeating back to you what I hear from other endowments and foundations in this situation is it's hard to add a new manager, a because they have to outperform our existing. But you also have this other internal illiquidity bar. So where are you going to go to bat for it? Right. Yeah and and it's and it's
2: hard because you know, as as asset as capital allocators, we're constantly looking across the portfolio and thinking like, what's interesting in the world? And actually venture is some of the most interesting things things we see. So we want to add to it. but you know, we we have we do have these liquidity limits. and I think you're right, a lot of endowments and foundations that have had these mature portfolios and are now at twenty, twenty three percent. It's really hard to add a new manager, especially, If you're at 20 or 23%, it means you have a roster of really high performing managers. So you're constantly having to ask yourself, do I put the incremental dollar into this new fund, which I don't know anything about, or with this proven fund? Do I save it for the next fund with this proven manager that I have high confidence in?
1: And just so, given the fact that we there have been IPOs this year, yeah, there have been other. There have also been some major acquisitions. Is that relieving some of this? Do you see in the market, or is it too soon because the lockup periods are still in place and a lot of for a lot? I haven't done the math on this, but I presume for most of them are still locked up.
2: Yeah, most of them are still okay. locked
1: up. I mean, it's been interesting
2: because there's things like Slack that have had this mm-hmm. direct. I don't even know what it's called. It's not really an IPO that's sponsored by a bank and, you know, where you have a book. It's a, it's an direct IPO. Listing. It's a direct listing, I think, yeah. I think that's the term. And so that's given you, there's no lockup period on that. So mm-hmm. it's just a very different kind of structure. I think we'll see more of that, which is, which is
1: pretty interesting. So do you, if you just crystal balled it, do you anticipate then that some of these, some of the folks at the 20 to 25% will start leveraging, taking advantage of that liquidity in the market to sell down positions and- Get back into whatever the school zone is. I, I do.
2: But I, I think it's gonna be really interesting because for a long time, people people, you know, we're if you read Kahneman and other behavioral yeah. economics, we're we're anchoring human beings. So we anchor on numbers, right? And for a long time, venture capital portfolios, the target was somewhere in the high
1: single digits. For an endowment, you for want, an endowment, you want like nine percent. Like seven percent or eight percent. In venture, yeah, as somewhere we of PE. Yeah. Okay.
2: Like and now all of a sudden everybody has these, you know, we're 14 and people are at 20 and 23%. So the interesting question is going to be, where do people re anchor? Are they going to go all the way back down to seven? Or is this sort of a, are we re anchored at a higher number now? And it's really going to be interesting to see where people come out because I think what we'll see is people are going to have, at least for the foreseeable future, a higher number. So it's not going to be, I don't think people are going to try to work their way back down to a
1: six. I think they'll work their way back into sort of a 12 or something like that. Is that because it's still true today that you can make essentially more money investing in venture than in other pockets? Because the potential for the return multiple is that high?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's a feeling that, you know, I mean, we've seen these companies that have grown from almost nothing to hundreds of millions dollars of revenue. They're, these are real companies doing real things. Yeah. We have sort of this automation going on in the world. I mean, if you use your imagination, you can imagine, like, we're going to be on the bridge of the enterprise and compute. You know, we still don't have, like, <laughs> voice interaction. There's so many more things that could happen here. And it's pretty exciting. And the world is very competitive right now. And so making technology part of your business, if, even if you're an industrial company, has become more and more important. So it feels like this can continue for a while. Um and I also think if you're willing to be patient, even if we do go through a downturn, there's always waves of innovation. So, you know, you
1: want to be there for the next wave. So, net, net, does that mean? And I appreciate this is a slightly unfair question because nobody knows the future. But even though we're in it, but the 10th year, of the 10 year bull, bull run possibly could go further, are you feeling somewhat optimistic about that? Uh, or just who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And then, how do you last question? I feel like we're probably at the time. Um, how do you then invest against that? Do you just keep doing the same playbook regardless, or do you? As a CIO, do you look across the portfolio and say, here's how I allow room for upside, but Mm. try to manage my downside should things change radically in the next, I don't know, the economists are always like, in the next two years, going forward every year, um, how do you as a CIO sort of balance that out? Well, because we have this long time horizon, and because, think
2: about the composition of our team. We are not macroeconomists. I've zero advantage in calling interest rate changes or recessions or anything. I don't know why we would be any better than the tons of economists out there who are also very wrong all the time. So so what we try to do is set a strategic allocation to the portfolio and adhere to it over a very long period of time. And we set that strategic allocation so that we can withstand these periods of time where we might have a lot of turbulence or a downturn in the market. And so we don't try to be too tricky or – You know, we're not going to go to cash because we feel like, oh, there's a recession coming. We really have to stay invested. I mean, if you look at research over years, you know, if you miss the best 11 days over five years or whatever, I don't know what the numbers are. You didn't get any return out of the market. You have to stay invested. And so we, for sure, we have biotech in the portfolio, too. Biotech and venture are like juice in the portfolio, But we also have this absolute return portfolio where we expect a lower return, but less volatility. And that's kind of our anchor to windward. So if we have really a tough time, we hope that will be a place where capital is preserved and we can take some capital out and reinvest it in the equity markets. And we also have our fixed income and cash. Mm -hmm. So it's a balance. We we do want to have some sort of protective positions in the portfolio as well as this, you know, high octane stuff. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure we talk about in the last bit? No, I just want to say, Beezer, you should definitely get back involved with Wesley and you should come on the board. (laughs) And you should show up on campus more often and
1: come to my office. Invitation taken. I'm absolutely happy to. I'll be in your office whenever you want me. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. It's wonderful having you here. Thanks for having me.
3: This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines. Partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP.